Hi everyone. In this episode, I speak to Shane Dillon, the founder and CEO of SeaTurtle and co-founder of UniAdvisor. As an edtech entrepreneur, Shane is passionate about improving the employment outcomes of international students who have returned to their home countries after studying in Australia, New Zealand, UK, Europe, Canada, and the US. Originally from Brisbane, Australia, Shane and I talk about the lack of Asia-capable leadership in Australia, the lack of support for international students by Australian universities, and why he chose Vietnam as the headquarters for his business. This is the Borderless Podcast, and let's get straight into it. Hi, Shane. Thanks for joining uh, me today. Maybe we'll just start giving the audience a bit of background first in terms of who you are and what you do. Okay, thanks, Sean. I'm really happy to be here today. Uh, my name's Shane Dillon. I'm originally from Brisbane in Queensland, and I currently live in Vietnam. Uh, and I'm the founder of an EdTech uh, data company called Sea Turtle. And we are an employment network for international graduates around the world. And we're also a data company that collects education and employment data on uh, returning international graduates. What was the inspiration for starting Sea Turtle? Yeah, so I've been living in Asia for now almost about 18 years. Uh, and I used to work for a group of insurance companies. And so we were trying to recruit uh, returning graduates who'd studied in Australia. And we were looking for graduates across uh, quite a few countries in Asia, in Hong Kong, uh, Vietnam, Philippines, Thailand, Indonesia. Um, and so I was trying to recruit some returning international graduates because we wanted them for their global perspective, for their English abilities. And I just couldn't find them. And so I started writing to universities asking what happened to international graduates and nobody seemed to know. Uh, so that's sort of how the company started. Uh, we put together originally a, an online community called the Australian Alumni Job Network. Uh, we had 100,000 uh, graduates and alumni join that in the first 12 months, all wanting to stay connected to one another. And uh, with that global or with that unified, I guess, goal of finding better jobs. In regards to, I mean, I know you're based in Vietnam. Why, why have you picked Vietnam as your destination? Uh, Vietnam's always been sort of in my mind. Um, my uncle worked over here in the 90s, so I grew up hearing stories about Vietnam. Before coming to Vietnam, I'd worked in China, Indonesia, Korea, Guatemala, and the Ukraine. And so when I came to Vietnam, it was just good timing and, uh, and it was an amazing economy. The people are unbelievably friendly. It's got a great quality of life. Um, and so, yeah, now I've been here, this is uh, over 12 years. Wow, that's a huge amount of time. Yeah. And so when, when you first um, set up Sea Turtle, obviously you saw a gap in the market in regards to the lack of information around um, the students that are graduating. Did, did you have trouble raising money and um, convincing investors and things like that? What, what were the main struggles along the way, I guess? Yeah, actually raising money was quite easy. Like it seemed to make sense to everyone except for the universities. Um, okay. That they needed to do more to engage international alumni and to provide more support for international graduates who do return home after studying in Australia. Um, we look at about maybe 95% of international students who study in Australia will end up back home within three years of graduation. Um, so, you know, that's the vast majority, uh, but there was very little done to support those graduates. So there was a lot of 
marketing messaging around how studying in Australia would help your career, but very little support in actually delivering that promise. Um, so we were overwhelmed by the demand from students, um, you know, and graduates. Uh, what was really disappointing was the lack of support from universities who, you know, didn't want to support a unified brand Australia in terms of their international alumni. Um, and that's something that, you know, has improved over the years. Uh, but we also see all the other countries around the world going, uh, putting a lot more money behind the support of their international graduates and their alumni as ambassadors for education in that country. And why have the universities in Australia been so, I guess, reluctant uh, with the continued support, I guess, of their students, of these international students? Um, I think a lot of it is just the way universities are, are run. You know, unless you fit into an exact category, you fall between the cracks. So for us, I know we would speak to international student recruiting teams who would say, you know, this is awesome that you do that, but we don't do anything with employment after graduation. You know, you would talk to careers teams who had no KPIs for international students. You know, and then you'd talk to alumni who had no um, interest in employment as well. So it was more falling between the cracks, not so much that everyone that we spoke to at the universities didn't think what we were doing was awesome, but it's just a very long sales process with universities. They're very political organizations. They're very fractured in terms of how they make decisions. Um, and unless you can find you know, a perfect person whose job is supporting international student employment, um, you know, and that really didn't exist you know, up until about six months ago. Okay, well, that's only quite recent. Yeah, yeah, very, very recent. You know, and that increasing acknowledgement of how important that is, um, you know, I believe has come through a lot of the research we've done. So we've provided industry reports to the Australian government and the Australian education sector for about uh, four years now. Um, and that research is pretty clear in terms of um, employment outcomes are the number one reason students choose to study in Australia, choose to invest in that education. And it's also the number one factor as to whether they will recommend their university or recommend Australia to future students. And what trends are you seeing about from the students that do study in Australia and A, stay in Australia or B, go back home? What is their general outlook or opinion of Australia generally? So in terms of, you know, recommending Australia and recommending their university, our research shows that only about 40%, um, you know, actively promote Australia as a study destination, actively promote their university to future students. Um, while there are, you know, a lot that are, um, are satisfied, there's not that many, you know, overall that are extremely satisfied or, you know, become ambassadors essentially. So, you know, and this is the same for, for most countries around the world. Uh, most of that dissatisfaction comes from employment support while they're in Australia, um, and particularly employment support after they graduate. You know, they are looking for that return on investment. They are looking, uh, particularly students from South Asia who tend to borrow money to have that education. There's a lot of pressure on, you know, getting a good job at the end of it. Um, and being able to either support family or, um, you know, pay back loans that they've used. And from what you've seen, um, how does Australia compare to other alternative education markets? Yeah, I think, you know, it's such a big journey um, 
you know, it's such a big investment for students that where we see Australia doing really well, um, and sometimes particularly more in regional Australia is on the experience the students have. Um, you know, they do tend to really enjoy living in Australia, you know, and that's equal for places like New Zealand as well and Canada. Um, where we see Australia dropping down is really in things like alumni engagement, career support, and that's somewhere where America does, you know, significantly better. Just in regards to these students, difficulties they have finding jobs either in Australia or maybe even when they return home, what are the major barriers? Like, is it like, for example, if they want to stay in Australia, is it visa problems, language barriers? Um, what are the main difficulties, I guess? Yeah, I think on the Australian side, you've got probably it's more on the employer side. You know, there is a lack of understanding, I think, within employers in Australia about post-study work rights um, that, you know, all the international students um, have now. And then there's also that issue around, is there really enough jobs in Australia that are related to what the students are studying, um, you know, for how many students are there? So I think a lot of the students would like to study there, but uh, sorry, would like to work there after graduation. But if they're looking for a job that's, you know, really related to their careers, related to what they're studying, there's probably a lot more opportunity, you know, either in a third country or back in their home country. Um, for those students that do return or for those graduates that do return, their main, main issue is a lack of uh, professional network back home. You know, they've been living in Australia for three, four, five years sometimes. When they go home, they don't really know how to access jobs. How do you get into that um, professional networks that really help you get the best jobs? Um, at the end of the day, most jobs aren't advertised. You know, and most jobs that are advertised um, are not the best jobs in the world. So to access that hidden job market, that non-advertised job market, it really comes down to your professional network. And so students that have been overseas for so long no longer have strong networks back home. And that's something that, you know, Sea Turtle works on. You know, we work with a few, you know, innovative universities around the world and we introduce their graduates to hiring managers. We have about 20,000 hiring managers that we work with globally. Um, and we help their graduates to get in front of those managers to get those good jobs. And just quickly on the data you collect, how much data do you collect? Like what's the sample size and how far downstream do you track these students, I guess, in regards to their employment outcomes and whether what they've studied is, you know, what they're doing um, for their job, for example, I'll help just give us a rundown of the data component. Yeah, sure. Great, uh, great question. So well, we track about 1.5 million international graduates and uh, that's metadata that we track in terms of where, where they've studied, what they've studied, and then what's happened to them since graduation. Uh, and we tend to track graduates for about 15 years after graduation. So we have a metadata set that's tracking 1.5 million international graduates. These are students that have studied in Australia, the US, UK, Canada, New Zealand, and Europe, and then returned to home countries in ASEAN, Greater China, South Asia, Latin America, Middle East, North Africa. Um, the other set of data we collect is survey data. And so we survey international graduates and alumni on their experience as international students, on their experience after graduation in the workforce, looking at that, those two themes of 
do you recommend Australia to future students? Why, why not? And do you recommend your university to students, uh, to future students? Why and why not? Um, within that data set, we've interviewed about 34,000 graduates. Hmm. And just with COVID-19 and, you know, all sorts of crazy things happening this year, uh, have you seen any interesting trends that will come out of it in terms of where students are planning, you know, if they're planning to go abroad still or whether they plan to stay in their home countries? Um, is there any, any insights you can give? Yeah, I think, you know, there really hasn't been anything like this with, that's created so much uncertainty globally, you know, for a very long time, certainly not in my lifetime. Um, mm. What we're seeing is just people delaying plans. You know, they were going to study, they've decided to stop. You know, people reevaluating, um, you know, online education, on uh, education alternatives. And I guess this is something that, you know, I believe the higher education sector needed in terms of a radical change in the way they operate and the way how quickly they move. You know, and you've sort of seen this with the adaption of online learning. You know, this is something that, you know, some universities have been very against for a long time, um, but then suddenly they can all do it in two months if they really have to. Um, you know, so I think it's a good opportunity for, you know, educators to reevaluate, you know, what is the value they're offering to international students. And at the same time, it's a period where international students are seeking more value. You know, the economic uncertainty, the job market uncertainty that, um, you know, current students and probably the next, you know, few years of students are going to face is, uh, is quite dramatic. So I think universities that can show university courses linked to employment, um, universities that can prove with data the employment outcomes of their students, you know, they're the ones that are going to come out as winners in terms of attracting more international students. And I just wanted to get your thoughts. I think there was a lot of news this year about the whole, you know, Australia-China relationship about, you know, international students that come here. Um, and then there's, there's too much reliance on them. Um, do you have any thoughts about that, I guess? Uh, well, I mean, I think there's, you know, there's a lot of data that comes out, you know, from industry reports on, on how reliant universities are. You know, particularly there's, there's some universities that are a lot more reliant than others. You know, I don't think that there's, you know, any issue with Chinese students. I think Chinese students add incredible value to Australia. I think the Australia-China relationship is incredibly important. Um, and that that international education is a big part of it. Um, but like in any business, you know, how, how reliant can you be on one partner, um, you know, if, if that's your business model? And I think, you know, there's certain states in Australia that have done a better job of diversifying their student population, you know, than others. I guess another comment that I see quite often is that a lot of these students are more treated like um, cash cows in relative to the amount of money they're paying and the outcomes they, guess, or they get, I guess. Um, do, you, is that, do you think that's a true statement? Yeah, well, you know, I mean, I always try and keep my personal opinions out of it. You know, I'm, I'm a data person. So, you know, what I look at is what do the students say? And there's certainly a lot of students that feel that way, you know, that feel that they're overpromised, um, you know, and, and underdelivered, that they come to experience an Australian university and the, the class sizes don't, don't have diversity that would represent Australia in general. Um, and so I think, you know, there's certainly universities that do a very poor job at delivering on the promise. 
and there's you know universities that do a great job. Um, I think in Australia, you know, like with anything where there's that much money on the table, at the end of the day, it is a huge industry. Um, you know, there are people that lower standards, that overpromise, that underdeliver uh, because they're chasing the money. You know, I think that's you know, there's valid claims there for sure. And just in terms of what Australian universities can do, can do better, um, given I think education is our third largest export in Australia. I'm not sure what the dollar amount is, but um, yeah, are there things that we can be doing much much better? Yeah, you know, and I think you know the universities, you know, are always trying to improve that. They're always trying to attract more international students. I think, you know, there's a bit of an issue where. You know, if you're an education group, you think every problem solved by another course or another, you know, another um, program, you know, I think, you know, a globally education institutes need to adapt for the current workforce, need to adapt for the current, um, you know, cost of education. So if you're spending that much money, you know, they need to see a return on investment. They need to see that there is value there. Um, I think, you know, the number one reason international students choose to invest in international education is to improve employability, is to improve their employment outcomes, is to improve their graduate incomes. Um, at the moment, very few universities provide any support in that space. You know, that's, you know, that's where we set up our company because we saw that gap there. Um, that's certainly something that, that the universities could improve on. Um, mm -hmm. You know, I guess the other aspect, you know, which I see groups trying to do more of is just making Australians in general more aware of how important that sector is to the economy and making, um, you know, employers see the value in offering part-time jobs to students, offering graduate jobs for um, post-study work rights graduates. Um, you know, that would be, I think, advantageous as well. Mm. Yeah, I mean, just from people I've interviewed in the past, there seems to be a lack of understanding of this Asia, the importance of Asia, I guess, in this in, in this century and how close we are to Asia. And I think there is a lack of understanding. Um, do, are you seeing that in terms of, you know, you've been in Asia for such a long time. Do you believe, you know, Australia doesn't, you know, engage in, with Asia? Could, they, could we be doing more in Asia? Absolutely. Um, you know, this is something that always shocks me when I return to Australia, how little um, Australians understand Asia, understand the opportunities there, understand the risks there. Um, and, you know, I'm not really, you know, talking about, you know, older Australians or, you know, I'm talking about the corporate sector in Australia. I'm talking about, you know, a lot of academics in Australia. You know, there is a real lack of understanding. Um, a lack of acknowledgement, you know, in the business community that Australia is an Asian country, you know, that we're not in Europe, we're not in uh, America. And I just see, yeah, just such a lack of understanding there, such a lack of awareness, um, you know, and that's reflective through almost every sector that I've looked at in Australia. Mm, such is quite a shame actually i mean oh, it's a huge missed opportunity like uh, i mean we call this the asian century but yet you know i've don't think i've seen any there's very few aussie companies that actually take the time to you know 
do if they do even if they do go overseas like some of the big banks have they pull out you know one or two years later so it's a there's just no long-term um thinking i guess in regards to that engagement of asia unfortunately well i think that's you know asia link businesses put out some good reports on that there's a lack of asia capable leaders in australia you know and that's reflective on you know repats australians have done a lot of work in asia i know have a real difficulty um you know, getting jobs back in Australia because of that lack of understanding of how important uh, that is. And um, yeah, you know, as I said, it's just a shame to see, you know, Australia being so close, having so many opportunities, um, particularly with, you know, more Asia in general, not only focusing on, on you know, on our biggest trading partner, China, um, but there's just so much opportunity in ASEAN, so much opportunity in South Asia, um, and there just seems to be very, very little Australian corporate involvement. There seems to be very, very little, uh, you know, Australian business involvement. So where do you think the, I mean, outside, obviously outside of China, um, where, where do you think, where do you see the next biggest opportunities for Australia in regards to, you know, education, you know, students, where they're coming from? What, what are your thoughts around that? Well, I mean, I'd be hard not to say Vietnam, being that I've been here so long, uh, <laughs> yeah. but ASEAN in general is phenomenal you know, Vietnam, Indonesia, um, you know, these countries represent, you know, incredible opportunity for Australia um, in the education sector and the trade sector, in the, uh, you know, diplomacy sector. Um, you know, there's just so much opportunity. There's such young, vibrant economies, you know, um, yeah, there's, there's a lot there. And it really crosses, you know, all of the areas that Australia um, are leaders in, you know, in terms of agribusiness, in terms of education, in terms of financial services. Um, there's just so much opportunity. And I just see most of it is a lack of, um, you know, Asia-capable leadership. Why has that happened? I mean, obviously things have gotten better. Like we, you know, we live in a more globalized world. Well, hopefully we will be, you know, going forward. But is it, I mean, I guess we've done well for 30 years. You know, is there any reason that we've done anything? You know, have we done anything wrong, I guess? Well, I find with Australia, you know, and this is a big difference between Australia, I guess, and Asia, like Australia doesn't seem to plan for the future. It only seems to react to the present. So Australia's, you know, taken the path of least resistance, has, you know, has only ridden China's rise for its economic growth. It hasn't really planned, you know, diversification. It hasn't planned, um, you know, a longer term strategy. So, you know, I think Australia, yes, you know, we've done great over the last 30 years. It wasn't because of anything we did. It was pretty much because we were close to China and, you know, and their economy's growth has supported our mineral exports and food exports and education exports. You know, Australia has a brain drain problem. Innovative Australians do tend to go overseas, whether they go to America or they go to Asia. Um, you know, and that's a lot of the lack of support and the lack of opportunity um, that's in Australia. Mm, no, definitely. And just going back to students for a little bit. Um, so students in Southeast Asia, whether it be, you know, those growing economies of Indonesia, Vietnam, et cetera, how do they view Australia as a destination for, for studies? Like, is, do people still prefer to go to the US, UK um, over Australia? Like how do we, even though we're closer to them, like how, how are we ranked, I guess? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's an interesting question and I'm just hopefully about to start a PhD in that, um, around that, you know, how university rankings, uh, you know, actually relate to employment and, 
and things like that for international students. Um, I think, you know, there's some of those very big branded universities that have, you know, phenomenal histories um, in America or in the UK that still do attract students. I think Australia is seen as a very, you know, healthy lifestyle. I think it's seen as, as relatively safe. Um, you know, again, is that Australia doing it or is it just because other countries are looking less safe? You know, I think that's, that's probably a bigger, bigger question. Um, but yeah, I think overall, like Australia is seen as a good place. It's seen as very multicultural, you know, and they do have to protect that image. You know, because there are incidences where that does get out and, and bad news spreads, you know, very quickly through social media. Yeah, definitely. Um, and just in regards, I think I saw you write something about, um, or you mentioned previously that students that do return home, they get paid less than their counterparts that have stayed in that home country. Can you elaborate a bit more on that? Yeah. So, I mean, we would look at it in, in a few different categories. So, someone who's stayed home but gone to a local university, uh, someone who's stayed home but gone to an international university or you know a transnational campus of an Australian university or a UK university, and then those that go overseas and study you know, in a country of education like Australia. Uh, what we tend to see is that both of the groups that studied and got an international degree earn more than people who studied at a local college in most places. Um, but what we did see is that those that studied at an international campus and stayed at home did earn significantly more money, particularly in their graduate jobs. What we saw around that was going back again to that access to professional networks for employment. You know, if you've stayed in Vietnam and you've gone to, you know, RMIT has a big campus here, you know, do you earn more than if you went to RMIT in Melbourne? You know, the answer is yes, and most of it is because you've gotten a better job uh, because you've maintained professional networks where you ended up working. No, that's really interesting. Um, that almost caused the question, like, what is the value of, you know, going overseas? You're not getting that much of a return. Is it, are you hoping for, you know, to stay in that? Is it because they're hoping to stay in Australia, for example, and get a visa? Is that, you know, if it's, if it's obvious that, that they're not getting a better job out of it, like, what, what are the benefits, I guess? Well, I think, you know, I, I think that's a very critical question that the universities need to ask themselves. You know, the experience of going and living overseas, the immersion in, uh, in English, you know, all of those things certainly make you more employable and you certainly do get a return on, on your investment. You know, you're just not getting as much return um, because you're missing out on those local job networks when you go home. Um, mm. You know, I think the experience of being an international student, you know, it would be hard to quantify and sometimes just in terms of that, can you put a value on that and living overseas and all the skills that you learn from going through that. But most students are looking for that return on investment. And so, you know, universities need to prove that they are going to help you find that job when you return, if you haven't been able to live there and, and keep, keep up your local professional networks. Are you seeing, I'm not sure if you track this, but in regards to Australian students, say going to Asia and studying or working, um, and then maybe they stay there or they come back. Uh, do, you, do you track any of that data? Like, are they getting paid more or less? Are they less valued? Are they more valued? Like, is there any thoughts around that? Um, I mean, in terms of being an ex, expat worker in Asia, um, you know, there's more competition for those jobs. 
You know, when I first came to Asia, it was 2003, you know, there was still a bit of a uniqueness to being an expat in Asia. That's not so much the case anymore. Uh, since a global financial crisis, you know, expat packages and, and salaries have dropped. Um, and then also because of this returnee international graduate market, there's a lot more, um, you know, alternatives in hiring an expat. If you can get a local candidate with global perspective, global education, um, you know, that's certainly there. On the other side, you know, the economies have grown significantly. So there's still lots of expats coming. And, um, and in most cases, what I see most don't go home. You know, the opportunities that are presented in Asia uh, are pretty amazing. Um, and really the only times you see a lot of expats go home is, is really when their kids are older and, and school fees and stuff come into play. Because, you know, that can be quite expensive overseas. Mm, definitely, yeah, international schools and whatnot. So, what w- what is Vietnam like, like in terms of like the you know the startup scene there, the ecosystem? What what are you seeing? Yeah, I mean the you know entrepreneurship in Southeast Asia is phenomenal. Um, you know what we've seen over the last couple of years is is a lot more money come into the the ecosystem. Um, there's lots of big players now looking at you know what used to be regional funds. There's now country specific funds. Um, you know, all with tens, if not hundreds of millions of dollars. You know, the risk appetite is still, you know, not great for around seed stage, but there's certainly a lot of money in, in really early stage and in, you know, series A stage investments. Um, you know, we didn't really touch on it. You know, you asked before about, you know, raising money for my startups. Like, um, you know, it was almost impossible to raise money in Australia. You know, they, no understanding of Asia, no risk appetite for really early stage. Um, but, you know, we were able to raise money in America, you know, really within a couple of days. Like, it's, it was a lot easier. Um, you know, and then we did end up raising some money from a university fund in Australia, but that was, you know, a couple of years later. Mm. And in regards to Vietnam, like, are you seeing more founders coming to vietnam like how does it how does vietnam compare to say i mean indonesia is very big at the moment Uh, how does vietnam in terms of attracting foreigners like how does that what's the scene like there yeah i mean there's probably you know depending on what sector you're in you know like singapore still attracts um more international founders to go and set up there. there's all the government incentives for that Mm. um you know vietnam indonesia is a bit more on attracting local Indonesians startup scene, but also an attracting returnee, Indonesian returnee Vietnamese. You know, there's a big push on that of trying to attract, um, you know, people who have either immigrated overseas or have been students and are currently working overseas to come back home and get involved in the local community, uh, get involved in the local startup scene. And there's heaps of that going on and some really cool startups. And I guess I'm not sure if there's many other Aussies, you know, that have founded companies in Vietnam, for example. Do they do it mainly a because costs and um, I guess maybe talent. I'm not too sure exactly, but yeah. What, do you have any thoughts on on that? Yeah, well, I mean, cost is certainly a big issue on an early stage um, startup. You know, there is, you know, there is talented um, tech people. You know, in Vietnam, that's probably not as true as it was, you know, five, 10 years ago in terms of the 
competition for that talent is now incredibly fierce everywhere. Um, but yeah, cost is certainly an issue. You know, cost of living is a lot cheaper. It's actually not that complicated, um, you know, to set up a company and run here. Um, you know, where again, you know, as I said, like in Australia, it's so, you know, over-regulated might be the best word to put it, but it's, you know, they, they don't make it easy. What, what are the major, what are the major challenges, um, for you, I've guess, just in this whole journey um, of being in Asia, especially Vietnam, what have the, been the major challenges? Is red tape? Has it been, um, I don't know, government-related things, um, language barriers? What, what Can you just bring us through that journey? Um, yeah, there really hasn't been, you know, very much of that. I, you know, I mean, not to say that it's been easy because it is difficult, um, you know, setting up a company, but I imagine it's difficult anywhere. Um, you know, and then it's the same problems you would have in Australia. It's, you know, how do you attract the best talent when, you know, you don't have bits of cash in the bank? How do you retain that talent? Um, but in terms of, you know, operating, in terms of, you know, being able to balance a good lifestyle, you know, on a limited budget, um, you know, all of that stuff's been, been pretty fantastic. Um, yeah, you know, in terms of government, you know, that's not very difficult you know you have clear reporting guidelines you just follow them um you know language has, has never really been much of a barrier um you know there is you know a great percent of the population that 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 speak english um you know so, so that's never been so difficult you know that might be different in other places but in vietnam it's mm. been pretty great um and then you know with vietnam you've had the backdrop of this just phenomenal economic growth so you've got a young population economy is doing well it creates a real like buzz atmosphere um, you know that everyone's doing better off than their parents were you know and that's mm. not really true anymore of uh, of western countries maybe just going back to what you're doing now i guess um so i guess can you give us an overview um of where of what you're doing at the moment and what you're trying to achieve over the next, you know, couple of years, I guess. Yeah, sure. So, um, so we've got two platforms now up and running sea turtle, which is, um, you know, providing the employment support for universities who want to support their international graduates who return home. Uh, we're introducing their graduates to about 20,000 hiring managers and, you know, making sure that they, get involved in um, or get access to those companies that don't advertise to those great jobs, um, you know, that they're getting interviews. Uh, the second platform we've just launched is called UniAdvisor, where we're looking at um, global rankings of universities, uh, but based on employment data instead of research data, which is how they're currently ranked. Uh, we're looking at, you know, how can we provide better information to future international students on where and what to study in terms of what's going to give you the best return on investment through employment. Um, so we're just building out these platforms. We're getting, you know, a lot more uh, partners from the US, from the UK, um, and hopefully, you know, Australia will uh, will follow suit. Mm. Actually, so I said one question I forgot to ask was, what are these students studying? I guess are there particular fields of interest like IT or I don't know. Business? Are they? Have you seen a trend in terms of what topics they're studying? 
Um, you know, because we're tracking so many, it is it is fairly diverse, but there are big chunks that do, you know, what you would think, you know, they're doing commerce, they're doing accounting, they're doing general business degrees, um, they're doing IT engineering and the master's degrees, um, things like that. You know, interesting is a subjective word, but is there any stats that you can give the audience in regards to, you know, things they may, may, may be interesting? Um, I mean, we've got a lot, you know, we've got lots and lots of data reports in our blog. You know, if you go to uh, seaturtle.co, um, you know, there's, there's heaps and heaps of data reports and infographics we put up. We try and put up one infographic a week, you know, looking at a specific uh, nationality and a specific university in terms of where they end up working and what industries and what job titles. Uh, we've also done, you know, these big annual reports on international graduate employment and satisfaction. Um, but, you know, for us, the big ones that stick out, you know, have always been that, you know, improving career opportunities is the number one reason they choose to study abroad. Um, that alumni provide the most accurate source of pre-departure information. And that's been a really critical one about, you know, where do students get their expectations before they go and study in Australia? And are those people telling them the truth? Um, you know, that's something that's been really interesting in terms of looking at, you know, what do universities say to students? What do agents say to students um, as they're getting enrolled in Australian universities? You know, are they over-promising around employment? Are they over-promising about, you know, what life is like in Australia for an international student? Yeah, I'm curious, how, how does that work? So do these universities have agents that go to Asia and pitch um, their, their universities? Is that How does the process work in regards to attracting international students to Australia, for example? Oh, that, that's a whole other podcast, I think. Um, <laughs> yeah, you know, I mean, Australian universities pay, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars a year to agents to recruit um, students for them. You know, sometimes there is, uh, most of the time that's, a, that's separate, you know, they're independent agents, you know, essentially selling students to universities who buy them. Um, you know, so there's, there's a lot of gray area there. There's been universities, you know, and that's where that whole cash cow, I think article in uh, Four Corners came up, you know, it was one university using a notorious agent network to recruit students that maybe shouldn't have been able to get into the universities, but had the money to get. Um, you know, there's lots of articles about how that student recruitment piece works. You know, we're not student recruiters. We're not agents. You know, we tend to look at more on the employment outcomes and the service delivery around uh, jobs. And then looking at the data and how we can provide that data to future students to get more accurate information on, you know, where and what to study so that they're more satisfied with the return on investment. Mm. Um, you know, I guess the other big ones that we looked at, you know, globally is that, you know, only about 40% of students, you know, do recommend their university to future students. Um, and maybe more alarmingly that over 20% actively don't recommend their university and don't recommend the experience to future students. So there is, you know, maybe one in five international students that, you know, are really unhappy with, with what they get out of um, an international education. And, you know, from where we've looked at that, you know, there's two main factors there. One is that employment outcomes 
you know, they're not getting the employment outcomes that they thought they were going to get from the investment. Um, and related to that, and secondly, is their expectations when they were recruited to be an international student were, were not accurate to their experience as students and not accurate to their postgraduate experience. So the two big areas are all around, you know, honesty in recruiting and then honesty in delivery. You know, if you pr promise them a great job at the end of their uh, studies, we'll deliver that job, you know, help them to get mm. that job. Yeah, no, I definitely read a lot of article of Chinese students returning to China, for example, um, and just being outcompeted by their peers that stayed in, in China. And yeah, it's just, I think that's something the universities need to be careful about. I think, you know, China's got a pretty strong university base, you know, Tsinghua University, Peking University, mm -hmm. those are only getting bigger um, and attracting more foreign students. So I think, yeah, I think Australia needs to be um, concerned about, about the stats that you're mentioning. Yeah, absolutely. And not only China, you know, there's universities, um, you know, all throughout Asia that, that are, you know, really, really good. And they're certainly uh, getting better and better every year. You know, I think with the concerns in Australia on the teaching quality because of, you know, uh, the student population diversity and, and other issues around that in terms of, you know, standards in letting students in, um, you know, while the rest of the world is going up, you know, maybe Australia's plateauing in that space um, and again you know I think that goes to Australia in general that they you know they only tend to react they don't tend to plan and, and, um, and do things and I think you know that's a real uh, critical failure of, of Australia in general mm. yeah it's a shame because you think to build better relationships with you know countries in Asia these students could be seen as assets rather than the quote-unquote cash cows um, oh 100 percent you know if, uh, you know, the opportunities for those students to stay engaged with Australia, to stay engaged with Australian businesses, to help Australian businesses expand. Um, you know, there's so much more value that could be um, taken, you know, out of that system rather than the tuition cash right at the beginning. Um, I think we'll start wrapping things up, actually. Yeah. Um, I guess for the audience listening in like who should reach out to you for one and you know who should be jumping onto your to your website i guess yeah sure so i mean sea turtles are you know a resource for uh international graduates looking for jobs you know so go on there there's a job board there there's a global talent page where we can help promote your cv to hiring managers um you know and then there's a huge amount of data that we collect um, that again, you know, I mean, we mainly work with governments and universities around that data to help them improve the international student experience and the international uh, graduate employment outcomes. Um, uni advises more for people considering where to study. Um, and it's a ranking platform that looks at what international students say about different cities, about different universities, in terms of things like uh, how they're treated at university, how they're treated uh, in the job market, how they're treated uh, in terms of safety, in terms of access to medical care, um, in terms of how much money they earn after they graduate. So for students looking um, to compare universities, compare study destinations, um, you know, uniadvisor.co uh, is a, a great place to start. We, I really like what you're doing, mate. It's just, you know, giving these international students an opportunity to find, you know, a job. Um, especially from hopefully from an Australian perspective that we can help um, better build relationships with, with, with Asia. 
Yeah, absolutely. You know, I think there's a huge opportunity there. Um, you know, and welcome people to to reach out to to us either through our website or through LinkedIn. Um, you know, it's it's there's a lot of opportunity there. I think there's a lot of um, businesses in Australia that could really uh, benefit from higher engagement with Asia. Um, you know, we're, it's it's right now backdoor. Yeah, definitely. And and just maybe just maybe we'll finish off on this. You know, what do you want to see? I guess out of out of what you're doing. Yeah, you know, I mean, what we want to see is, you know, that 100% of students that choose to invest in Australia recommend it to everyone they talk to for the rest of their life. Mm. You know, that's been the goal of the company from day one. You know, we saw the reason why they weren't doing that was employment, uh, employment outcomes and postgraduate uh, engagement. You know, so what we want is that more and more students study in Australia more and more students uh, that do study in Australia become huge fans of Australia and engage with us through their careers in business and trade and, uh, you know, in soft power and in all of those regards. Um, you know, that's what we want to see happen. And we really want to see, you know, a hugely prosperous Australia and Asia, um, you know, in a peaceful and mutually beneficial way. You know, that, that's, uh, you know, that's really what we're all about. All right, mate. All right. Uh, thanks for your chat today, mate. Really appreciate um, what you, first of all, what you're doing, uh, what you're trying to achieve. And yeah, thanks for sitting down with me and um, having this conversation. Yeah, a pleasure, Sean. It was great. Yeah, cheers, mate. Well, have a good one. Yeah.